Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, guys. Well, welcome back to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today, I'm joined by Amy. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. What can you tell us about yourself, your life, marriage, ministry, and what are you working on ministry project-wise these days? Yes. So I'm Amy Joseph, married to my handsome husband, G. Joe, for 16 years now. So we, he and I met through the college ministry of campus outreach, which is the ministry that we ended up doing for many years after we got married. Um, Both of us came to faith at the end of high school um, through youth ministries, young life, and then, but our really formative spiritual years were in college. And so we share that in common. And then both of us just have a, a huge passion to had a huge passion, still have a huge passion to reach college students. So we were doing campus ministry in the Southeast. So in the Bible belt, uh, Greenville, South Carolina was kind of our home base. And, mm-hmm. um, and then in 2010 ish, we started to kind of feel this holy restlessness of, I think we're both made, to minister outside of the Bible Belt. Um, I grew up in an an unbelieving home in the Northeast. My husband grew up in um, Houston, Texas, and we both just had a heart for the urban culture, post-Christian culture, and and more diverse cultures. And so felt like, okay, God, I think you're going to have us go somewhere. We thought we'd go to Boston or Philly. And God kind of in his providence redirected us to San Diego. So we moved to San Diego with our our two of our three children um, at the time, Tyus and Eli are our oldest, um, 14 and 13 years old. And then when we moved out here, they were like four and five. And um, and then we had our third son, Finn, when we moved to San Diego. So we have now three boys, 14, 13, and eight. So my life is a weird mashup of like college ministry, adults and nerf guns and little children. So um we we love where we live, San Diego, California. We did college ministry out here on the West Coast for the past 9 years and then um kind of through doing college ministry out here just there was a real need for a, a healthy gospel-centered, Bible-believing, discipleship-oriented local church near our campuses. Um, one of our campuses was thriving because it was close to our church in North County. And then the other two were really struggling with our graduate catching graduates on the back end. And so just started to feel like, I think God is calling us to, to church plant um, alongside of this college ministry and kind of catch some of these graduates and the fruit that God had been doing in our neighborhood and in our school system. And so we handed over our ministry, our, our little baby, um, nine or uh, goodness, a year ago to some, some of our dearest friends who are doing a great job leading it. And we've been planning a church kind of in our neighborhood. Um, yeah. So that's what we're up to. We're in the middle of planning a church. We're six months old. So we're still awesome. alive. 
Uh, and you're and you're in my favorite city in the United States, San Diego. I mean, it's, San Diego is amazing. You're suffering for Jesus there for sure. Well, I know that's what I tell people all the time. It was really hard, kind of, to raise support from the southeast to be like, someone has to go to San Diego, <laughs> suffer for Jesus on the West Coast. Um, it's the irony is that we're not really beachy people. So I feel like oh. in some ways we don't deserve to be here. We're not surfers. Um, we like to go to the tide pools, but um, we love our city. We love, yeah. love, love. Yeah. Well, the good news is you probably don't get distracted then. So you're focused. That's on true. That's true. For God's glory. So yeah. praise we'll, God for we'll that. We'll walk on the beach for dates, but we're not, uh, we're not there every morning surfing like some people are. Well, that's great. Well, can you tell us about this uh, new book, uh, Demystifying Decision-Making, why you wrote it and how you hope it'll be received, please? Yes, absolutely. So having years of experience doing college ministry, you have one-on-ones, weekly meetings, you talk about God's will. I swear every single time you sit down with someone, they want to know the question is what I'm doing, right? What should I do in this decision? Am I living in the center of God's will that comes up a lot? Is it God's will that I do this major? Does God's will that I marry this person? Is it God's will that I go overseas? And so just from years of experience of doing that and saying the same things over and over again, it kind of became a, oh, I think this is one of the biggest most accessible conversations that you can have with young believers, non-believers is this idea of like decision-making and, and the thought of we're constantly making a decision. We're always either making a decision, just having made a decision or about to make a decision. Um, and so, I, you know, it started with a real focus on college students, but then it kind of started to expand as we've been doing adult ministry in the church. Man, we're constantly making decisions and there's a real need for resources that are accessible, that are uh, approachable to people who maybe don't have a, a theological degree, uh, that maybe haven't been in seminary, that haven't had a chance to deeply study this topic. Um, so you want it to be accessible, but we also want it to be theologically rich. So we want it to be sound theologically. We want it to, to ask the question, well, what does the Bible have to say about that? How do we know who God is and what his will is? So it was kind of the the center point of all of those things coming together. And then also TGC and Crossway um, kind of said, hey, this is a really great topic that we would like someone to write about. So kind of the, the nexus point of all of those. Um, and as far as what I hope, how we hope it will be received, I hope kind of like I just said that it would be considered accessible, but theologically rich, that it would be, um, it would have a real God word thrust and it would be for God's glory, but it also be practical, like that people could actually use it to make better decisions um, and to walk in the freedom that God gives us to make decisions. Um, I think a lot of people are constantly second guessing their decisions or living in fear or completely paralyzed by decisions, um, which is really hard to, to feel when you live in a culture where freedom is amok, right? It's not that we live in, a, you know, a culture where a lot of decisions are made for us. We have analysis paralysis in our culture um, and decision-making fatigue is real. <laughs> We're tired of making decisions. And so just to understand the freedom of decisions, how to make better decisions, I hope that's the fruit of this book. Yeah, I really like how, you're, how you describe that. And I, I guess I would just take that and, and run with it a little bit in that you, know, you really take like, we, you said before we pressed record here, you just took like the best of what everybody is saying and tried to put it together and really help lay people. And I think that's exactly, exactly what I got out of reading it. I just thought it was really, really helpful and helpful, really helpful for, for the person that's like, 
like you said, how do I make a decision? I'm struggling. I'm paranoid about it. Like, will God be unhappy with me if I make this decision? And I'm so afraid. And, you know, I'm like, I'm like, my palms are sweaty and like, I'm just like freaking out and I can't sleep. And I'm just anxious all the time because I'm like, "Ah!" you know, it's like, dude, chill out. And here's a good book and here's a Bible too, you know, (laughs) and let's talk about Christ. So I think that's, I think that's really, your book is really helpful. So. Well, good. I'm, I'm, I hope so. Yeah. Well, what's so dangerous about Christians being engaged in a new age type approach to decision-making? Yes. So I talk about this in the book. I, having lived in the Southeast for a very long time, um, it feels a little bit far. New age stuff felt kind of far away. Like, oh, that's just in movies or in, you know, really strange people do that. But moving to, to San Diego, I can tell you that tarot, tarot reading, tarot card readings, palm readers, those kind of things, new age stores, there's more of them in a three mile radius around my house than there are churches or schools mm-hmm. um, it, everywhere. It's ubiquitous. And if it's not in your city, it's coming to your city um, because San Diego and the West Coast are pretty post-Christian. And so what we're experiencing here is going to come into mainstream culture in the next, you know, I don't know, it could be five, 10, 15 years. Um, so before I get into what I think is wrong, what's dangerous maybe about the new age approach, I do want to just kind of click on what I think is actually good. Like it's a step in the right direction, which I think is a kind of can sound like a strange way to start. But um, when it comes to decision-making, we kind of one of the the stepchildren of the enlightenment idea of reason alone being king is this idea that if we could just do reason alone if we could just kind of the idea of the horse like the horse and his rider that that the um, that the emotions are this wild bucking bronco that needs to be controlled by the reason and and the rationale and if we could just make a pure reasonable decision we would make good decisions that's kind of the uh a byproduct of the enlightenment, if you will. Um, And I think that the new age movement presses up against that and, and says, hey, we've tried that and just reason alone, just human, secular humanism alone, just, just mankind alone isn't enough. We want more. We want to know that there's some supernatural thing that is helping guide and direct our lives um, that is outside of human reason and control. So that's where I think that that the step towards new age is actually a sign of people being tired of secular humanism and tired of this idea of sheer reason uh, alone being the way to make decisions. Now, I'm not saying we should make decisions just based on emotion. I'm just saying that there's a hunger in the human nature for a supernatural, something transcendent and larger than itself um, that I think the new age gets right. They're stepping in the right direction. So I want to commend people for that, but I would warn them that they're not going far enough, right? So, so new age, the idea is um, that there are these forces, this is fate, there's these, the, the, the astrological symbols are guiding us. If you're a Sagittarius or you're a Pisces, that those things are affecting you and the alignment of the planets. Um, I would say, yes, you're right in that there is something greater than ourselves, but you've got to look past the stars to the one who made the stars, <laughs> right? You've got to look past the wrinkles in your hand to the one who created your hand, um, that it's not enough that there's this impersonal fate superpower behind all of creation, but that there is a personal, noble God who desires to reveal himself, who is transcendent, who's above and yet imminent and near. 
that is the God of Christianity. That is the God that we serve. And so the danger, obviously, in the new age thing is it's it's giving a great credence and power to creation um, rather than the creator, which is exactly what Paul says in Romans 1, right? Though, though they knew through the inv- in, invisible attributes of God, they knew through creation that there was a God, they did not they did not honor him or give thanks to him. They did not revere him and they worshiped the created things rather than the creator. And so I'd say step in the right direction, but not nearly enough that um, don't settle for an impersonal force guiding you. Um, know that there is a personal God who not only wants to guide you, but wants to know you, <laughs> wants to love you. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's what I would say about the new age thing. But I would say it is real. And um, even if you just go to Target or you go to a jewelry store, the the Pisces, this like the astrological symbols, it's it's on mugs, it's on t-shirts. Um, and it's not just a like a fashion trend, it's because people are really hungry for answers and something greater than themselves to guide themselves. And so to me, I actually think that the new age conversation is a great segue into asking about spiritual things and into getting into spiritual conversations. I think it's actually a really sweet evangelism tool. Um, because when people are talking about those things, they're searching and we get to help them say, I know what you're searching for. And I know far more uh, that there's far more to it than you think there is. Um, but yeah, it's real. And it is coming to a neighborhood near you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. It's 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 here in Southern Oregon. It's obviously was there when I when I lived in California and growing up in Seattle. I mean, you can't go anywhere. The yeah. occult, the new age, all of it, you know, and. It's all, like you said, it's all feelings based. There's no, like one of my good friends, she was one of the top new age speakers, teachers, Doreen Virtue. And uh, she, she was, God saved her uh, Mm. by just reading the Bible. And now she's in a solid reformed Baptist church and, you know, she's learning and growing and she's been to seminary and, you know, those same things. And, and what a powerful testimony to Mm. God's, to God's grace, but you're, you're absolutely right. And, um, you know, people, I just had a message uh, on one of our Facebook pages about, oh, I need help. I Googled you and somehow we came up and needed help. And all this message was all just about basically how I feel and needing, finding some sort of coach to coach me. And I'm like, no, what you need is you need scripture <laughs> and you need the scripture that tells you about Christ. And so I just pointed her to the sufficiency of scripture and to the sufficiency of but you make a good point. I think one of the things with decision making um, that that is overwhelming to people is is it's there's it's we live in a, a culture that is full of choice. And in Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish theologian, he said something that I think is fascinating. He said that anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. Anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. And so we think the more and more freedoms we can get as Americans, we think you know, more freedom, the better, the more freedom, the more I'm my own master. And Kierkegaard would say, if you take it to its logical end, the logical end of that presupposition, more and more freedom is more and more anxiety. And, and so part of, I think the reason that we're in such a place where there's such a need for a book like this is because we live in a culture where self has been at the center. Um, and so you, this whole idea of you do you, and you figure out your own destiny, you create your own identity, even down to your own gender and your own age, you, you create yourself. That sounds like freedom, but what it results in is what we see in our culture. And that's a culture completely 
filled with depressed and anxious people who are crushed and paralyzed because ultimate freedom is not just about ourselves, right? And as believers, we know that freedom is to be made in right, to be in right relationship with God and to do what he, what he wills, that that is our good. Like Jesus says, I, my meat is to do the will of the father. I love to do what he, what he has for me, but that's where true freedom is found. Our culture is getting tired of so much freedom and choice. Um, and I think it's because self has been at the center um, and that the, the answer to that is not more self. So a lot of books on decision-making, it's, you know, very self, self-centered self therapeutic. Okay, do this better, do that better. What we need is self not to be at the center. What we need <laughs> is to be put in our proper place and yeah. for God to be at the center and for us to rest in his sovereignty and in the way he's created us. And um, that's what gives the freedom and the purpose that we're looking for in our decisions, not more of self. We can't yeah. solve the problem with the thing that created the problem. And the thing that's that right. created the problem problem is self. <laughs> so the answer yep. is not more of self. The answer has to be a savior that puts self in its proper place. And then that's we can enjoy the freedom of making decisions. Yeah, that's really good. It's like you were talking about earlier. We have analysis paralysis. That's mm-hmm. because we live in a psychoanalyst culture that, oh, well, just just psychoanalyze yourself and your situations and everything else. And uh, you'll you'll figure it out. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, how 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 deep do you want to go? And the only way that you're going to go is down and you're going to discover your depravity and that's hopeless. And then we wonder why we have a problem with suicide among teenagers and college students and, you know, on and on and on and drugs and so forth, because that's where hopelessness leads to. It leads to, you know, all of that. And that's what Christ came to, you know, accomplish for us is, you know, freedom uh, from sin and new life in him and all of that. So really good stuff. Well, we're talking about, you know, worldviews and how they impact our lives. Um, In what way does our worldview influence not only the way we approach decisions, but how does it provide a framework through which we see, understand, and process the world? For sure. So worldview is a pretty Christian-y term in the sense of, um, unless you're in philosophical circles, um, it's not something that people talk about a lot, but everyone has one. Whether you think you have one or not, you have one. You are operating out of a worldview. And so we like to talk about worldview as like a lens through which you see the world. It is the it is the comprehensive story that makes sense of your life as a human. Um, there's lots of different options for worldviews and plenty of great books about it, by the way. Lots of great books about worldview. Sure. Um, but everyone has a worldview. So a, a lens or meta narrative, a great big story that makes sense of all that we experience on earth. And every worldview impacts the way we make decisions um, because worldview answers questions like the why questions, the nagging why questions of our existence. Um, like, where do we come from? What is our ultimate purpose? Why are we here? Why are we on this earth? So existential questions. It asks, what is wrong with the world? Like what's broken and then what's the solution? How do we fix it? Where's our hope coming from, right? And so if your worldview is secular humanism and you think that man is the measure of all things and that man is the, the answer and man asks the right questions, he's going to find the answers. If you think that's the case and that this is this life is all that there is, if you can't, you know, secular humanism is a highly materialistic and I don't mean consumeristic, I mean material things. If you can't measure it, taste it, touch it, it's not real. So if you come from a materialistic, secular, humanistic worldview, that's going to influence the way you make decisions, right? If if I'm just going to go and rot in a, in a 
in a grave and become, you know, food for worms, then I can do whatever I want with my body. It doesn't matter <laughs> how I harm others. If, if ultimately man is the measure of all things, there's no right or there's no wrong. There's no ultimate right or wrong or good. So I become my own judge, my own jury. If that's how you make decisions, if that's how you think about the world, that's going to affect the way you make a decision. The same thing is true for expressive individualism, which is another one of those most people don't say, oh, I vote, I ascribe to the secular humanistic worldview because it's the water that they swim in. We don't realize it because it's all around us. It's the air that we breathe. But expressive individualism says it is all about me expressing myself, being whoever I feel like I want to be. I'm going to actualize myself and, and carpe diem, seize the day, be the best you. All of that is really expressive individualism. And if that's your view, then you're going to make decisions based on what you feel, as you were saying, your emotions, your desires are going to become a tyrant. And when your desires become a tyrant, in the moment, that feels like freedom. What, what that leads to is addiction, <laughs> um, depression, anxiety. So our, our worldview is going to affect the way we make decisions. As a believer in Christ, if you ascribe to, the, to Christ and to his, um, to his story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, you know that we were created for a relationship with God and we were ultimately head towards eternity, either with or without him. That's going to affect the decisions that you make. If you know that glory is coming, that one day there will be no more sin, no more sickness, no more death, no more separation, you can enter into the foster care system and you can love people sacrificially because you know that you've been loved. That's going to affect the way you make decisions. You can say, I'm going to actually choose to suffer redemptively for other people because I know that it's just for a short season and that there's a reward and there's glory coming and that other people are going to get to come with me if I enter into, you know, redemptive suffering with others. And so the, the yeah, the lens through which we see the world absolutely affects our decisions. And, mm -hmm. and it's important for us to kind of slow down and back up and ask the question, what is informing my decisions? Who is ultimately at the center of my decisions? Is it my desire? Is that what's the center? Because desire sounds like a good God, but he becomes a tyrant, becomes a despot. <laughs> he, he is um, exacting <laughs> and he will, he, will, he will cost you everything. So you just have to slow down and stop and go, what is actually driving my decision? And if it's not the scriptures, if it's not the word of God, um, then I think you're in a perilous place <laughs> um, eventually. And again, in the moment, it might feel fine, but 10, 15, 20, 25 years down the road, um, I think you'll see something that you're not hoping <laughs> yeah. to get. That's really good. Just to draw it back to like what you're saying, scripture, you know, Ecclesiastes 311 says that God set eternity on our hearts. And I think it's in Psalm 1611, God says that he, he offers pleasures forevermore. Those are in Christ. So hedonism, like you're talking about, excuse me, seeking pleasure for pleasure's sake. Uh, it's ultimately not going to satisfy you. It's not going to bring you what you want. It it ultimately is, it's, it, you might get what you want in the moment, but it, 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 after the moment is over, it, you're going to find, you know, and we all know this, uh, you're going to be unsatisfied. And that's yeah. why you have to find, be satisfied in God alone. So yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What uh? What three points about God's will will help us to better understand the will of God? Whew. I think it's hard to boil it down to three points. Dave, I was laughing at that one. I was like, "Well, you did. Well, I you did." did. <laughs> I wrote down a few. I wrote down a few. Um, one of the things I said is, um, "God's will for you is your sanctification." 
Okay. So that's directly from the scriptures. First Thessalonians four, three, Paul has this mic drop moment, mic drop moment where he's like, do you want to know your God's will for you? And you can imagine everyone just like, yes, tell me what is God's will for me? Um, and he says, God's will is that you'd be sanctified, that you'd be conformed to the image of Christ, that you become like Christ, that you take on the nature of the father that you take part in the family business, that you resemble your father, that you've been adopted into this family of, of Christ, that you start to look like him, you be conformed to him. He says, that's what God ultimately wants. And that is such an unsatisfying question, answer to people who are asking the question, what does God want for me? But it is the true and it is this, it is the ultimately satisfying answer, um, but it doesn't scratch their itch most of the time because what they want to know is what does God actually want me to do in this particular situation? Um, and that's where the whole freedom of Christ, like the liber Christian liberty comes in because God says, I've given you my word, my word, it, you know, it says, um, in, in, oh, second Peter, um, that God has given us all that we need for life and godliness. Second Peter one, three Hebrews four, 12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces to divide joint and joint and marrow spirit and soul, right? The, the word of God, uh, uh, Paul says in his last letter to his protege, Timothy, he says, all scripture is God breathed and profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. He says, I've given you everything that you need to know in this book. In my revealed will, word, I've given you all that you need to know to live a life that honors me and fulfills your purpose as a human. So his will for you is that you do his word. <laughs> his will for you is that you do his word. Now, that's where it gets a little tricky because within his word, there's three different kinds of law, right? There's, there's ceremonial law, there's civil law, and there's moral law. So this is where it gets tricky when you talk to people. Well, okay, well, the Old Testament says you shouldn't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So is that, should that, that part of God's will for me? Well, that's a misunderstanding of the three different kinds of laws. So the moral law, when I say God's will for you is that you feel, fulfill his word, I mean the moral laws of scripture. And then within that, it's kind of like a trampoline net. Um, so we have three boys. We have a trampoline. Um, God's word provides this net around us. And he says, this is what I want you to walk in. And then there's great freedom in the middle of that trampoline to just kind of bounce around and do. We have real, real freedom to make real decisions that have real consequences as believers. And so there's actually a lot more Christian liberty than we think. Um, there's a lot of freedom as we make decisions, you know, to wear the green shirt or the red shirt you know, God's just really not that concerned about the green shirt or the red shirt. Now, is he sovereign over it? Absolutely. He is sovereign. Um, but he, he cares far more that we're living in obedience than if we're obeying him by going to work as a doctor, if we're obeying him by going to, to work as a teacher, right? Um, so his will for you is your sanctification. That's number one. Number two would be God cares more about you knowing his will than you ever could. So God has desires for you. And so I always have people asking the question, what is, am I at the center of God's will for me? What is God's will for me? And God's will for you is to become more like him. And he cares more about that than you ever could. And he's going to providentially steer your life so you can trust his hand. Um, God's will is three would be God's will is found within his word. It's lived forward by faith and seen backward by by hindsight. So we, we can't know God's hidden will for us um, until it happens. And I'm going to explain that in a second. I think we're going to get into a little bit more about hidden and revealed will, but um, 
Yeah. So I'll just, I'll just dive into hidden and revealed will. So the idea yeah. of revealed will is that that comes a little bit from Deuteronomy 29, 29. Moses is talking to his people um, kind of at the end of his life and the end of his speeches, kind of a, Hey, I'm about to, I'm about to not be with you. These are the things you need to remember. And he says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, for the secret things belong to belong to the Lord, our God, but the revealed things belong to us and to our children that we might obey them forever. And there's this idea that there's, there's, there's what we need to know that's clearly revealed in God's word. Like we just said all those verses about the word of God and what he has for us through his moral will. Um, but there's also the hidden will of God and that's his providential dealings with his people. And we can't know that beforehand. We know that looking back. So I use the example in the book, I think of, of college decisions. Um, I applied to a bunch of different colleges, had my heart set on going to Duke. Um, and then on a whim through a friend applied to this random little college called Presbyterian College and had never set foot on it, just on a whim applied. And um, ended up that they gave me tons of money to go there. And so I ended up going there rather than being in debt to go to Duke. And, and you know, while making the decision, it was any one of those would have been fine. I was pulling my hair out trying to figure out where to go to college. Looking back, I know that it was God's God's providential will. His, his hidden will for me was to go there because that's where I grew in my faith. That's where I met my husband. But I couldn't have known that looking forward. I had to know that looking back. And so the idea of revealed will and hidden will is really freeing because it helps us focus on what we do know. <laughs> we know a lot more than we think we know, right? We don't know if how long our business that we're going to start, if it's going to be successful or not. But we do know how God wants us to run our business. And we know how he wants us to love the people we interact with and that he wants us to uphold the, the laws of our government and make sure we don't cheat on our taxes. We don't know how many days we have to live on this earth. I don't know how many days my children are going to be alive, but I know how I'm called to love them sacrificially while they're here. So God, God's revealed will and his hidden will helps to clarify. We're wasting a lot of time splitting hairs on things that we're not going to be able to find out until we walk by faith. And then looking back, we're going to be able to see that God actually steered all of this, Romans 8, 28 through 32, that all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so it helps to look at the providential dealings of God with his people in the Old Testament. So you look at people like Joseph, where his, his story makes no sense. If you're Joseph and you're in the moment living out his story, the whole thing makes no sense. But at the end of his life, looking back, he's able to say to his brothers, you meant it for evil. All that you did to me, throwing me in the pit, selling me to the, to the slave traders, all that happened to me, providentially God did so that he could save his people, right? God had a plan. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. He didn't know that while he was in prison. He just knew God is with me. God's going to care for me. So it helps us to look at God's providential dealings with others when we're living our lives, because we're not going to be able to see that in real time. We can only see that looking back. Does that make sense? Absolutely. That's okay. really good. Yeah. Um, to just for our listeners sake, I'm just going to say when we talk about the hidden will of God, theologians call that the decretive will of God. And then when, when we talk about the re revealed word of God, we're talking about the prescriptive will yes. of God. And like you're saying, this is so important to, to really understand because like, I think if Christians get a hold of this, like it'll help them like, okay, so I don't really have to worry so much about, uh, okay, I'm going to get this house. It's a matter of, okay, can I actually like afford the house? Do I have enough money? And then, and then like the mortgage lender is going to tell you, Hey, you meet the qualifications for this. So then you're going to know because like you have, you a can afford it. 
And God's going to use that in his common grace in your life. And these are all things that that God is going to use in his sovereign all, all it boils back to, like you said, there's providence and his sovereignty. He's going to use all those things for your good. So like, you don't really have to, you need to find the house that you like. Yes. But also the one that you can afford. And, and same with, I mean, we would probably go a little bit further with marriage. We, we would involve like the church and our friends and, and those kind of things. So we're not just saying like, Hey, okay, here's one example, like with the house, you're going to find out God's will. Well, you're going to find out God's will, like for marriage, like through the church, because you want to bring in like your elders and pastors and godly friends. And, um, and, and even in there, like, even in like your, those decisions, like the house and those kind of things, you want to bring in your family and your friends and talk and, and, you know, have really good, you know, godly conversation. Like, should I be moving? It's not a matter of, should you move? Like, is God leading you to move? And like, when we moved, we moved ourselves out of California because it was, we wanted to be closer to my parents who have Alzheimer's and dementia. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my, my uh, sister-in-law lives here. She moved here for a job. So we wanted to be here for her and her, uh, you know, um, my nephew and then to be closer to family. And so like, are some of these things, like, do you want to be closer to family? Do you have extenuating circumstances it's not just, okay, I'm going to pull up. Like, you know, you, you would joked uh, before you were recording, you know, everybody is leaving California and moving yeah. to Texas. It's like, okay, you may not like governor, you know, you may not like governor Newsom if you live in California and you might want to move to some other thing, but think about it this way, you know, uh, God is the one scripture says who puts leaders in the place where they are. That's, that's, that's what God's will is. He, he does that. And he turned Proverbs tells us that he turns the heart of the King wherever he wants to go. And, and so, you know, moving away or staying where you're at, like God planted you there and just recognize that God planted you there and that he wants to use you there for however long you're going to be there. So just moving away to move away is probably not the best. It's not the best for you. It's not the best for your church. It's not the best for the people around you, like for your talent, skills, and abilities, like, um, you know, and I can, yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think one of the things that we say over and over to, to, to college students, to friends, to you know, church members making decisions is if God's will for you is for your sanctification to be more like him, the question isn't, can I do this? Or it's, is this wise? Is this going to lead to spiritual thriving? Um, because that's what God wants for us. He wants us to spiritually thrive. Yeah. Is this going to lead to me flourishing as a believer? And so we tend to tell people, we encourage people to make decisions based on community uh, church, right? So like when it comes to job decisions, America, our, our culture, our worldview says success equals making money, the most money you can possibly make getting the biggest house, where we would say, no, the Christian worldview says actually spiritually thriving and being part of a vibrant spiritual community and a church where you are on mission with other believers, that's actually success. And so we don't pick the job. We don't necessarily pick where we move based on where we get the greatest offer, but we we do it based on where do I have existing connections? Where is there a healthy church that I could, where we could, I could see us thriving? Is it close to my neighborhood so that I could do life and do discipleship with people? And we live within a couple of miles and we can do life together. And um, we encourage people to make decisions based off of that more than, money or opportunity. Um, because one of the things that is hard with decision-making is every need is not a call and every opportunity is not God's will for you. 
So just because God opens a door, uh, there's plenty of open doors and you can shove doors open, right? We have self-wills and we push doors open. And so just because it's it's an opportunity doesn't mean it's his will. And just because mm-hmm. there's a need doesn't mean it's a call. So there's tons of needs all around us. Even just thinking about decisions, little decisions, like where do we spend and invest our time and energy? Currently, uh, there's so many refugee families coming to San Diego. Um it's one of the biggest refugee cities in the United States. And so there's tons of Afghani families coming and we are connected to the Afghani community. So every day I get emails that are saying there's a new, a new, you know, Afghani family moving in. Do you want to be part of it? And I have to say, okay, in general, God's will, yes, is that we would love the foreigner, that we would welcome the stranger, <laughs> um, that we would sacrificially love others and that we would love them, love even our enemies with the love of Christ, that we would give them bread and food. And just like Jesus said, when I was naked, you, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visit me. When I was hungry, you fed me. That's God's will in general. Is it God's will every day for me to go move every family in? No, because every need isn't a call. And so I have to say, okay, well, who am I? Who's our family? What has God called me to? My husband, my children, my home, my church are my priority. And then if I have time, now is this God's will that I would step into this particular opportunity today? And so, yeah, just it's a whole different lens on making decisions when we start to understand revealed will and hidden will. Yeah, that's Uh, so good. That's so good. And just like opportunities, like just because you have, like I've had to learn, in ministry, just because there is the opportunity doesn't mean I go and take it. In fact, sometimes that opportunity, uh, one of my mentors says, God hand tailors the situations of our lives. And mm. so it's so that opportunity can actually be an opportunity for God to grow me. Am I going to say yes to that opportunity like this immediately? Or am I going to wait? Am I going to pray about it? Am I going to yeah. ask about it? So not every I've come to this decision, come to this conclusion um probably in the last five years um it's not just not every yes is is for you and not every no is to be bad like like getting a getting a no on a book proposal or a pastor position or an interview that doesn't devastate me anymore because and it shouldn't devastate us or, or whatever that is because god is sovereign um and if you prayed about it and you've sought the Lord and you know you've sought godly counsel and have come back, like you probably shouldn't do this for whatever reason. Like there's a reason, and there's been times, like especially in my early twenties and my college years, where I was like, "Hey, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do," mm-hmm. and and then it came back. It was like, "Wait, this is really really bad." In fact, I made some really really bad decisions. Why? Because A, I didn't listen to that accountability. And also God was using that accountability to save me from the heartbreak. So like you talk about to college students, I mean, that applies to adults too. Like when people are telling you the things and you're asking them and they're speaking into your life, really, I mean, it's not, we're not saying, we're not saying like you have to take everything as gospel truth, but we are saying you should take it you should really think about it. You should really pray about it. And you should probably most likely, if it accords with like scripture, you should probably go with it, you know, like well, for, it's for your good. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you, I mean, you're making a great point and that's that 
it's not the flashy, fun advice that people want. People want this like formula for decision-making where they want this really new, cool perspective on it. But the ancient perspective is really the right perspective. It's, it's what the Lord's given us. Um, and we live in an individualistic culture and we do not like the thought of counsel and community and submission to authority. We don't like those things. We rub up against them because they go against the gods and the idols of our hearts. And yet the scriptures say, It will go well for you when you listen, when you have wise counsel, when you have other people in your life who are trusted, who know you, who know God, who know the scriptures, who know the gospel. Um, When you have those people speaking into your life, it, it is better for you. And we don't like that because we're in an individualistic culture. And yet the Proverbs is chock full of, of little pithy statements about needing many counselors, needing wisdom and how, um, gray hair is the crown of the aged, right? Because there's wisdom and experience that knowledge isn't just something you can YouTube, that spiritual maturity and experience, um, come with, with maturity and age. And that there's a lot of wisdom to be had in having counselors, wise, trusted counselors. And so in the book, I talk a lot about the idea of trusted trespassers. And it's this idea of there, there are people who have the keys to your life. They have, just like you give trusted friends and neighbors a key to your home and say, hey, if I'm out of town, come water my plants. Or if you need something, you can just break in and get it. Um, But there are people that we say, you have keys to my heart and you can ask really uncomfortable questions. You can snoop around in my motives. You can snoop around in my life because I know you. I know you know me and I know you know God. I know you want the best for me. Um, And you are going to stand with me against my sin. Um, you're going to stand with me against my sin. And so when you have people like that and you're making a decision, they can ask really hard questions. Like, are you just doing this because it's popular? Are you just doing this to please your family? Are you just doing this because it feels good in the moment? Or are you really thinking about your children in this decision and how it's going to affect them? Um, I mean, fill in the, fill in the blank, but having those trusted trespassers who know God, who know you, who know the gospel and not just know it intellectually, but live it who are able to apply the gospel to your life and say, Hey, I see some really sick motives here, but you're still loved because, because we believe the gospel is that we're more sinful than we could ever imagine and more love than we could ever dare dream. And so having a few people like that, they help point out your blind spots by nature, blind spots, you're blind to them. That's the whole point. And so we got a fancy car well, fancy to us, um, like five years ago, and it had blind spot detection. And it was amazing because it would just, Oh, there's something in your blind spot. There's something in your blind spot. Um, and trusted trespassers do that. They say, you have a major blind spot here. <laughs> um, and, and I need you to look at it and to consider that and to think about that. So you have to have trusted trespassers in your life. And that's where being involved and engaged in the local church is significant because mm. I, we can give you principles. Books can give you principles. You can listen to a podcast. You can do all those things. But to be a part of the local body of Christ means that you are known and that mm. you are seen. You are seen in your nuances. You're seen in your circumstances. Uh, you're seen in your sin. You're seen in your potential and your gifts. And they can speak into things that other people cannot. That's why the local church is so significant, right? You can hear incredible sermons on the internet. That is not the same as the local church. You need to be committed to a local body of, of believers who's speaking the word to you, who's speaking truth over your life, who's exposing your sin, because that's what's good for you. That's your best. Um, and so absolutely, when you make decisions, listening to wisdom. Um, and, and I talk about in the book, this idea of gauges, like I have a friend who's in pilot school and 
there's so many gauges in the cockpit of a plane. Oh my goodness. Um, and so you have to kind of learn to, to, to read and to trust the gauges. And so I think it's helpful when you're making decisions to know that, you know, counselors are a gauge. They're not the only gauge because I've made some really poor decisions listening to counsel when it wasn't what God was calling me to do. It made sense on paper, but it wasn't what God was, was calling me to do. Um, we stepped, when I was, we were transitioning to church planting, I left like my dream job at our church that we were at doing women's ministry, writing curriculum, making money. We need the money in, in San Diego. And God was saying, it's time for you to step away from this role. And it made no sense on paper. It didn't make any sense on paper, but that was God's way of preparing our family for this church plant to make more space in our lives. And so even though some people were saying, but this is, this is the perfect job. And it was, but I think God is calling me to step away from it, even though that makes no sense at all. And we need the money and all of the different things. It was, and as we walked in faithful obedience, God provided all that we needed. Um, so you have to know your gauges. You have to know, you have to kind of be able to assess what is what is influencing this decision. And so in the book, I talk about um, the cultural gauge, an idolatry gauge, a desire gauge, um, personality gauge, and knowing kind of where you stand. If you're, if you're really risk averse, um, that, that plays in your personality is going to play into your decision-making. And so you're going to have friends who are saying you're overthinking this. It's time to make a decision and go with it. Or you might be really adventure, adventure seeking. And so you're just ready to move every two years. And you have friends who are saying, Oh, I think that's your personality kind of really wanting new adventure when God's maybe calling you to stay here and be faithful and to trust him. And so you have to know your different gauges and, um, and be able to read them and then ultimately say, now that I've seen the gauges, Lord, I'm laying this decision out before you and saying, God, guide me, direct me. I've, I've looked, I've thought through which um, are idols. They have an outside voice in our decision making. So if your idol is success, then that's going to affect the way you make decisions. You're going to say, I'm going to pick the job that gives me the greatest money. I'm going to work the hours that give me the greatest money. That's going to have an outsized voice in your decision making. So you have to understand what are your guiding idols in your life? For me, it's significance. I want to make a significant impact for the kingdom of God. And so I can over listen to, to significance. Oh, this is this decision is going to make you look or feel more significant when my significance is ultimately in Christ. And so I'm free because of the gospel to say, I don't need to do significant work. I can stay home with my kids and take care of them and be a stay at home mom even though the culture says that that's insignificant because I know my significance is in Christ. So you have to know what your specific idols are and kind of say, okay, how much of this, how much is, is my desire for a relationship and to be married playing into this decision to maybe marry this person that's not walking with God, right? Okay. Well, that's my idol speaking, not what God would actually have for me. So it's just that's a helpful good. tool, I think, to know your gauges. That's really good. Just as we wrap up this episode, guys, we're going to do another one here on Wednesday with Amy as well. Amy, do you have any takeaways for our listeners or those watching this? Oh, goodness. So many things I want to say. Um, that's why you should read the book because it's all in there. Um, I, I, I would hope and pray that you would know that decision making is, is a gift and an opportunity um, and a privilege that you get to steward, not a problem that you have to solve. And so just the approach to decision-making, it's not this, this burden, oh, I have to endure this and figure this out and get it right. It's actually a privilege that we're given as image bearers of God to make decisions, that God's given us the ability, the creativity, um, the reason, the consciousness to be able to make decisions that honor him, 
that's actually a gift and a way to, to show off who he is and to show off the Trinitarian God that we believe in when we make decisions. And so I just, I would hope that this would free you in decision-making to say, this is a privilege that I get to co-create with God. I get to come alongside him and make decisions that have real consequences and do actions that make a real difference. And that's a gift and a privilege of the believer in Christ, not this problem that we have to pull our hair out trying to figure out um, that God will want us to walk in freedom. Yeah, just the idea of that, what Paul said, he said to the Corinthians, you have the mind of Christ. And he said to the Colossians, Christ in you is the hope of glory. That's what we get to do as decision makers. We get to be conformed to the image of Christ and make decisions that honor him as his mm. agents on this earth. And I think that's an incredible gift and a privilege, not a burden. Um, so I hope you feel that and, and, and experience that through some of the things we've talked about. Amen. Well, we, we've really enjoyed the conversation and look forward to continuing it with you on Wednesday. So thank you so much for Thanks. your time, Amy. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.